Sigo buscando y no encuentro respuesta El sentimiento llama de tristeza Que me consume la cabeza La vida muestra que lo bueno cuenta De mucha entrega vienen recompensas Sigue luchando y ya lo verás And we're live Welcome, everybody, brothers and sisters from around the world. Welcome to the great debate, the great Israel-Palestine debate, and this is our 10th episode. We are getting some background noise. Let me fix that real quick. Cool. Uh, whoever enjoyed that song, that song is called Seguer by Heavy Levy and Cheo Stein. The link is in the comments. Every week, we play a new song from a local artist. If you want to submit your music, send it to me, as long as it's not horrible. We will play it. Today we have two very special guests. But before I announce them, for those who are here at the great debate for the first time, what makes this debate great? What makes this debate different from other debates? This is not a debate where both sides are trying to defeat one another, trying to humiliate one another. Rather, both sides are working together towards common ground. If you came looking for a fight, you probably won't find one here. Well, not a fight between people, that is. You will find people working together to fight against bad ideas and to fight against hate. That is what you'll see here. The idea is to provide a platform where we can learn about topics, the most important topics we're facing today, and where we could hear people's perspective from all walks of life and all sides of the political spectrum. So without further ado, I am very, very proud to announce my guests. Small delay showing them. There we go. Oh, and they're gone again. 2020, and we still have technical difficulties. On my bottom left, Rafi Gassel is a father, a Zionist, a scientist, and a peace activist. Lives in Jerusalem, where he works in biotechnology in the fields of diagnostics and genetic sequencing. He advocates for cooperative coexistence and equality in Israel and Palestine through the realization of mutual recognition of indigenous rights for the Jewish and Palestinian people. And to my bottom right, we have Kamal Nawash, a Palestinian-born American lawyer from Ain Kerem, Jerusalem. He works for Nawash Law Firm in Washington, D.C. Kamal Nawash has been an advocate for many social and civil rights issues. However, his passion has always been the equal rights solution, one state solution for Israel and Palestine. In recent years, Kamal shocked many by organizing a conference at the Ariel University Center of Samaria titled Best Plans for Peaceful Israel-Palestine. Nawash argued that due to historical claims both Pal Palestinians and Israelis have for the same territory, the only possible solution for them is to become equal citizens in a united country. Nawash believes that Israel and Palestine is indivisible, as is Jerusalem, and thus he favors the creation of a federation rather than racially segregating Israelis and Palestinians into two states. Nawash has been a regular guest on CNN, Fox, BBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, Voice of America, and many other U.S. radio stations. We've got a celeb with us today, it's fair to say. Two very bright individuals with a lot to say. The topic, as you know, is Israel and Palestine. The subtopics are indigeneity, who are the indigenous people of this land. Another topic is exploring the Federation, which is a solution to the conflict, which is gaining popularity day by day. So 
We'll start with you, Kamal. I, I want to hear a little bit more about your views on indigeneity. Who are the indigenous people of this land, and does it really matter? Oh, wait, hold on. On mute, sorry. All you. No, it doesn't matter, but uh, the indigenous people of this land are the people who call themselves indigenous. I mean, from the very beginning, I mean, if you look at the essence of this conflict, is that both sides call in question the other side's connection to this land. Israelis, every, you know, I've been hearing, even though my ancestors go back to the time of Prophet Zechariah, you know, I hear every time I'm in Israel, Jews saying the Palestinians came from Arab countries, you know, to try to discredit their origin, or they, or they would say, uh, you know, after the 1920s, when Jews came here, all of a sudden, people from the Arab countries came in search for jobs, and that's who the Palestinians are. Obviously, we don't believe that. Similarly, Palestinians will say Jews don't really have any connection to this land, and they'll use any argument. They'll say, you know, these are people who came from Europe and settled here, or, and in, or, or, they, or they will discredit the biblical argument. They'll say whatever covenant God had with Abraham, Jews uh, broke that covenant at the Sinai. I say all that, I don't even want to hear that. I, I'm just saying it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we did this. We fought for about a hundred years, you know, before 1948. The basis, we've both been saying that the other side doesn't belong here. And so over the years, people talked about a historic compromise between the Palestinians and the Israelis, or the historic compromise that people need to make to find peace. And in most instances, people discuss compromise as meaning someone giving up land. I see the great compromise is not in giving up land, is not in giving up any of your rights. I think the great compromise is to, gen is to believe or to accept that the other side is a native of this land, regardless of whether you believe in it or not. That's why I say it doesn't matter whether we use a text to, textbook definition. The point is you have two warring sides. You know, neither side has been able to annihilate the other. And believe me, they tried. Neither side has been able to succeed. So now we're looking for a way forward. And I can't imagine any Jew will convince me <clears throat> that I'm not native to this land, just as I cannot convince any Jew that he's not native to this land. To the contrary, I think we should start every conversation by saying, you know, whether it's Palestinian talking to a Jew, or I, I usually use Shlomo as the symbolic Jewish name. And, uh, you know, you have to start by saying something like this, you know, Mr. Shlomo, I understand why this land is important to you. I understand you have historical and religious ties to this land. I know you have emotional ties to this land, and I think every Jew in the world should have the right to move here and become a citizen immediately. And I'll go one step further than that. I'll say, don't just move to Israel proper, which is the land of 1948. You can actually come live with us in the West Bank and Gaza. And But I want the same thing. You know, I'm willing to give that. I'm willing to recognize all that. I'm willing to accept that Jews are native to this land without any without anyone having, 
you know, to justify it or explain it to me. It doesn't matter. I have to believe it. I have to believe it because I know that if I don't believe it, there's no chance in hell that I can reach a resolution. Because if I'm not willing to accept that you're native, what's the next possible conclusion? If I'm going to continue seeing you as not native, then that means you're not legitimate. You're not legitimate in this country. That means I have a right to keep fighting you to get rid of this illegitimate force. Well, I don't want that route. I'm willing to live with you, but I have conditions. Like, you know, I don't really care. I don't, I don't care if I'm living next door to Shlomo or to Rafi if I have equal rights in this country. I mean, to me, genuinely, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I don't even care what the country is called. If I have equal rights as any other Jew in the eyes of the state, if the state does not differentiate between me and Shlomo, what do I care? What do I care? Why wouldn't I want to live with you? To the contrary, I see a lot of benefits. I see a lot of benefits. I mean, you know, using all this energy and resources that we have for fighting, we could use that to do other things. We can do, we can use that to do other things. And, you know, we can focus on our education and our technology and prospering. But, but you know, before I, I, I end this, I, I want to say it is significant that you understand my political uh, perspective would be considered as that of a liberal in terms of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. The reason that's significant for me to mention that here, the only reason that's significant is because even though I am a liberal in that regard, even someone like me would not accept a two-state solution. So even, so, so even if Israel ever really decided to give us a real two-state solution, I still would find it unacceptable. Even if they gave us all the West Bank, all of Gaza, with a military, with everything, it would be unacceptable to me. The reason I say this to you, if I consider myself a liberal ideologically when it comes to this issue, and I'm telling you that I would think a two-state solution is unfair, then imagine trying to convince a person who's more conservative than me so, so this is the only reason I mention that, and I'm saying, um, if I am treated equally, I feel I believe I have a claim. I have a right to every square inch of this land from the from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. That doesn't mean. That doesn't mean. I have to accept a system where Rafi has any less rights. I'm just telling you what's my minimum requirements. I am so attached to this place. I am so attached to this land as a Palestinian. I'm not just attached to Ramallah. When I go to Tel Aviv, when I go to Nazareth, in my mind, as is every Palestinian in the world, when they set foot in these lands, in these cities, they're not thinking I'm going to some foreign land. They're not thinking I'm going to some foreign city belonging to Jews or Israelis. No, they think this is home. 
And it's significant for you to understand that. So I'm telling you how I feel. How I feel as a liberal Palestinian, even I, the most liberal you can get, will find the two-state solution unfair, unacceptable. And if I'm that way, so you know, you must ask yourself, then why would the Palestinians, you know, 20 or 25 years ago, why did they accept it to begin with if they really don't believe in it? And the idea is we felt we were forced into it. We, you know, we were we felt out of weakness we had to take it. And so, but but you know, I think God loves us all that it didn't work out, that it did not work out. Because a solution based on military strength alone is unlikely to last. So you want a solution that whether you're strong or weak, or whether I'm strong or weak whether you trust me or not, or whether I trust you or not, it can still work. And to me, to me, that is not giving up my rights in all of Israel, not giving up my rights in all of Palestine. And I assure, you know, meaning when I go to Nazareth, when I go to Haifa, I want to feel like I'm going to my ancestral city, a city where my ancestors are from. So, but just because I say that, it doesn't mean you should see that or you you should take that as something negative or meaning that this somehow is against your interest. To the contrary, right. just because I love this place, I can accept that you can love it just as much. Right. I can accept that. And if I'm, you know... I mean, I've met, I've seen Rafi several times before that as Yehuda and all that. We were friends, you know. I started meeting Jews or Israeli Jews only 10 years ago. Before, I've never had any interaction with them. And, you know, it's a, I do feel we're unequal. You know, they have citizenship in the country they're born in. I'm from Jerusalem. I'm not a citizen of my own country. This is a problem, but this is the only obstacle I have. If I get rid of this obstacle, if I am a citizen of my own country, if I have the same rights, if I have free movement of labor and people, I have no problem whatsoever living next to Shlomo or waving at him across the green line. I just don't care Right. as long yeah. as I have equal rights. And then that's my introduction, pretty much. Cool. Well, thank you for that, uh, Kamal. You know, to summarize, it seems like the, the conversation on indigeneity doesn't really matter because all conversation should start from a place of mutual recognition of one another's right to living uh, here and right to self-determination. So there's no point in getting into that conversation. And furthermore, you believe that we all love this land. We're all living here. There's no reason at all why we can't live together and why we can't be equal on this land. Sounds reasonable enough to me. Uh, Rafi, what? The one last thing. I'm sorry. One last thing. And so then the only question becomes, how do we do it, the structure, so that each feels safe? I mean, ultimately, well, you know, the one-state uh, solution. Come on. We'll, we'll get into that. I just want to give Rafi enough. Okay, yeah, right, right. Right. Uh, Rafi, so uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic of indigeneity. Sure. So in terms, I agree with uh, almost everything Kamal said here. In, as a Jew, I feel 
100 percent the same way that I if I go to Hebron or I go to Bethlehem, I feel like I'm at home. When I'm in I'm in the West Bank is the most the West Bank and Jerusalem area. This is the most roots you you get as a as a as a religious Jew, and as as you know just my 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 personal feeling. It's almost hard to describe. And I've I've been you know involved in debating with with Palestinians for. For many years about this story, since I was in university, I started like a dialogue group with the you know Israelis and Palestinians, and then when I, I came here, I actually I, I saw a video of Kamal on uh, he was interviewed by the Jerusalem Post, and they were doing this event in Ariel, and then we and we I, I sort of reached out and we got involved in the Best Plans uh, project, and I started debating with uh, people all over the world about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and I feel like it almost always boils down to that issue of. Both guys, like like Kamal said, that both guys, you know, a lot of the hardcore Israelis on the, on the far right are all saying the Palestinians, they're all from, you know, Morocco or they're from Arabia. They're from any other Arab country except for here. And then the Palestinians are like, no, the Jews are from every other country except for here in, in, in the world. They're like, very much, it's a core, they're afraid to let go of the belief that they're the indigenous person and for them that means that the other person can't the other person can't be indigenous for their indigenous to be true and if they accept that they're traitors to their own people as soon as i say that uh, that kamal is really from in karam like he says he's from in karam all of a sudden you know i'm um i'm giving up my rights to to, to israel and three thousand years of, uh, of of history and longing to return to our homeland is is uh is, is washed away so my perspective over time, and also I, I, I know you mentioned that I, I run a DNA sequencing lab. So over the years, there's been a lot of like genetic studies, and I've been you know following that sort of stuff. Mostly, I work in you know oncology and uh, agriculture and, and, other, and other stuff. And now coronavirus is the, the new thing. But uh, I've been following all these studies, and for years, you, you see that like the majority of Jews and the majority of Palestinians are seem to be related to each other. And this is, this data has been out for, for 20 years and it just gets more and more crystallized over time. I mean, now you have, they dug up like 70 samples of bones from 3000 years ago and they published it in a, a peer reviewed paper saying, yes, the majority of, of Jews and Palestinians who are living in, in Israel now are seem to be the descendants of, you know, of these people who lived here 3,000 years ago. And people are still like ignoring, they're like, no, no, no. They don't want to listen to like that, that bit of truth. What I think in terms of indigenous, I know some people try to give a very like academic version of what it means to be indigenous. They try to get very narrow, narrow rules. I, I think from the UN, I saw the UN, is not, uh, the UN has not recognized any official definition of indigenous. What, what world bodies use for, what indigenous means is it's a title that you use to protect the people that have been somehow disenfranchised in their own land. You know, and I, a story when we were, we were just talking about before I got here, were the, were the Mexico, which the word Mexico comes from. These people were originally from what's now New Mexico, right, with a land they call Aslan. And then they, they migrated south in about the 1300s and conquered the central Mexico Valley and subjugated what used to be the, the Olmec Empire and created the Aztec Empire out of it. And no one would say the Mexica are not indigenous. The reason they're not indigenous, even though they were, you know, they were building buildings out of stone and the other people were building, you know, building tents and they, they were more technologically advanced than the people they subjugated. But then a whole a much more advanced population that had guns and, and you know, literature and, and, and ships that could sail the ocean 
the, the Spanish came and conquered their land, and then they became the indigenous. Indigenous is, is, is a Latin word, and they, in Spanish you say indigenas, for, uh, for it means a native, as opposed to the conquistadors, as opposed to the, the people who conquered them, or they call them the peninsular, the people from the Iberian Peninsula. And most people in Mexico today are neither. They're what you call mestizo, which are half, they're mixed. And in terms of, and the truth is, in terms of, if you wanted to get in, in that framework, you could say the Jews and Palestinians are both mestizo. Jews, I'm, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, so like our actual history, in case people don't know, we, there was a big war between the, where now the Italians, the Romans, and, and the Jews. And this is now the period of time when we, we mourn the loss of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was surrounded by an army of, of Romans. Everyone was, was trapped in the city. They, they uh, like barricaded the, the city. They wouldn't let anybody food. Their people starved to death. They started setting the city on fire. And, and something like hundreds of thousands of people died in this event. And they took, like, everyone who survived, they took them as captives. They took them to a place that you can now see in Hebron, and they sold them as slaves on the, on the block. They sold them into slaves in Italy. And over time, there was a small Jewish community in Italy that had paid money to let these people be free and to, to, be, to, to uh, redeem themselves. They redeemed these slaves. They like, bought them out of slavery. And apparently there was like, more guys than girls because they had more, captured more soldiers and more women had died in the, in, the, in, the, in the result of the war. So they ended up marrying Roman, Roman people. So I'm also Mestizo. I'm half, I'm half Roman and half, Jew, half Judean. That's, that's our truth. And then in Palestinians, I mean, I've seen also the genetic data and I know the, the, the history. They're also mixed. There were, you know, the Arabs came from Arabia and conquered the land and mixed with the local people. There are several tribes that are, there are Arab tribes. There are no names of, of Arab tribes. But if you look at like at the, the DNA evidence, they're all completely mixed. This happened like thousands of years ago. And so everyone is like, like me, like I'm not a pure-blooded Judean. I'm not pure-blooded Italian. I'm a, I'm a mixed person. Just like, and, and the Palestinians, they're a mix between the Arabs that, that had conquered the land and all the natives that they assimilated into their culture. And like I had a, a, an Arab worker, a, a scientist who used to work here, and she once asked me one day, she's like, why do, all the, why do we have this custom, whenever we make, we make bread, we take a little piece of the bread and we stick it to the side of the oven. Where does this come from? Like, that's a, that's a Jewish custom, it's called challah, you know? And then like we're at, at our weddings, we would take a glass, everyone in my village, and they step on it. I'm like, what, what is this? I'm like, yeah, you're mourning the loss of Jerusalem. Like, I'm like, but it doesn't mean that she's Jewish, you know? She's been for, God of her, over a thousand years, been, been Muslim and stuff. I can't, like, I, it's not for me to define her identity. But, you know, I could recognize her as, you know, sort of a long-lost relative, which is, you know, nice, but it's not for me to push my identity on her. I could, you know, respect. So I, I so the way I look at it, even though you, you say both people, we share common ancestry, we both came from this land, we've developed our own identities now. And so that's why both sides have a, a, real, a real legitimate claim that they're from here. And at the same time, they identify as a different group of people. So that's why I'm in, I'm in favor of agreeing that they're both indigenous. Because both people also, they were also victims. I mean, the Jews were expelled here. At the time when they had the, the first, first Zionist Congress, Jews were second-class citizens in every country in the world. In, like, in uh, 1889, they got this group of Jews together saying, where are we going to move to? And what was their problem? Jews were, were second-class citizens and honestly facing annihilation on, on three continents. There were, there were massacres, and, and eventually there was the huge massacre of the Holocaust, but there was, they were, they were threat, facing threat, and they were discriminated against everywhere. So they were like, we got we to gotta do something about this. So we, we want to go home. You know, so they were a people in trouble. Now, 
how does that what what happens to indigenous people when they've unindigenized themselves and they've they've now come back to power uh, you know how do they how do they mix into our modern sort of academic concept of indigenous I, i'm you know it's complicated but then also the palestinians what made the palestinians indigenous on one hand they're indigenous because they're like i, I there was a quote from crazy horse who's a famous native american uh you know um leader and a, and a, and a warrior and he said, the, my, my home is where my dead lie buried. You know, they're indigenous because they're from here. And then they're also indigenous because they've been subjugated by people that were, that were more sophisticated or more, more advanced. The Jews, at least, at least the Jews from Europe, had more advanced technology. They came here and they, they brought medicine and they, they drained the swamps, they, all the stuff that the Zionists brag about. They, they, were, they, were more, they were more advanced and they had backings from, you know, from the Americans and from the French and they, had, they got more advanced weapons. And even though they were completely outnumbered, very much like the conquistadors versus the Aztecs, they were able to conquer the place because they were they had come from a, a place a society that was more that was more developed than they had come here. And, and Palestine at the time was, was pre-industrial, was mostly agricultural, so it was you know it was it wasn't a fair game. And they, they were able to, to conquer the land and subjugate the people. But so now the Palestinians have become indigenous from the the academic perspective. They're now people at risk. You know they're at risk for losing their their culture. Their heritage, their language. You know, we're you know people who want to Israelify. You know, Israelizatia, Israelify the country. They want to make them all into our model. And I, I don't. I think that when I say I want indigenous rights, I want the the rights described in the by the Universal Declaration of Indigenous Rights is when you have a people like the the Native Americans or, or in Canada or in other parts of the world, you have a people that's in danger of being uh, you know of not being able to preserve their heritage and preserve their connection to their sacred sites and their symbols. So I want those, those protections, both for the Jews, so the Jew, for the Israelis, so we can keep our flag and keep our, our symbols and our menorah and our, and our names and preserve our languages and our culture and not get, in, in the event that we have a, an Arab majority country, you know, we'll be a minority and not be able to, to preserve what we think is, is valuable as, as indigenous people. And likewise, the reverse. If I'm, if I'm the majority here, I'm going to Israelify the, the, you know, the Palestinians and they, you know, they won't feel comfortable going out as, as, you know, representing themselves in their native culture. And so I want people, both sides to have that protection of the, the definition of indigenous, have that, have that label and those rights as indigenous, including the right to return, obviously, because that's the most fundamental right. You know, if you're expelled from your homeland and you're an indigenous person, you should have the right to go home. You know, and then when you get there, you should be respected and you could say, listen, I want a school where I can teach my kids in my language. I want to have my, my cultural symbols. I'd like to have, you know, my, my religious holidays be respected as part of the national culture. All, all these sort of things. And to find a way that within the framework of, a, of one country to do that for both people. So, you know, one country where both people are indigenous and, and that's basically like the whole country. You know, that, that's very much the majority. Yeah, I'm, I'm missing, I'm not hearing you. background noise thank you for letting me know it's muted because i could have gone on for minutes before i would have noticed that you make a very good point that i'm going to try to summarize in two sentences i'm doing this off the cuff so i may not succeed to be the most articulate but i think it's very important the claim you're making is that indigenous rights were created in order to protect native people against persecution from outside forces now most instances of indigeneity, it's very clear who the indigenous people are. It's people who have lived there for a very long time, and then an outside force 
came. Now, you know, at face value, value it would seem the Palestinians under that criteria would, would fall under indigenous. But when you, when you look at it deeper, you see Jews being here, one of the first civilizations on this land, uh, were kicked out of this land for 2,000 years. The nature of why the term indigenous was created, it actually, it sees, it, it's to protect native people, so it can very easily apply to both populations, which I think that's a very powerful point. And I'm, and I'm, ha you know, I'm, I'm happy you brought that up. Um, now, next week we're going to have a debate with Sherry Sufi, who is an Australian scholar and politician, and Ryan Belrose, who is uh, an Indigenous rights activist. Both are non-Jewish. Both are Zionists. They're probably going to have a vastly different perspective on indigeneity than what has been presented tonight. But I'm very happy we had this conversation because it's just going to make next week's con next week's conversation all the more sweeter. And if somebody's listening to this and they feel like they're not agreeing with this version of indigeneity, well, then you might agree with next week's version. But, you know, as, as you know, an issue this complex, the debate must be ongoing. And that's exactly what we plan to do here. So, guys, thank you both for that. It's, it sounds like there's no area of contention between you thus far. Is that right? All right. Not, not on my side. You hear me? Yeah, yeah, great. So, uh, you know, I see no reason to continue on speaking about the past. Let's talk about the present and the future. How do we get out of this mess? How do we solve this conflict? It seems like you both um, alluded to the same point, which is one state solution, some form of a federation. You guys are both on board with the federation plan? Yeah. So. Sure. I, we, we might have, when you get to the details, Kamal, you might have some ideas, but you hear me? Yes, Kamal, sorry, you, you were muted, but um, Kamal, feel free to take the first go at it. You know, yeah, let, look, look, what the idea of the one-state solution isn't actually a new idea. It certainly wasn't me. It certainly wasn't Rafi. They were talking about it. You know, I read a book by Avi, uh, historian Avi Schleim, which you may know. You know, he's, he's an Israeli historian, and this issue was being discussed even as far back as the 1920s, before Israel became a state, where Palestinians were saying even back then, look, there's no way you'll ever see a day of peace if we don't have equal rights in this place. There were people in the 1920s. I mean, but even, you know, look at, for example, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the famous uh, Iron Dome missile system that Israel has now. The only reason I mention it is that is the name, Iron Dome. That comes from a, another word from the 1920s called Iron Wall, which was written by uh, uh, Japutsky. Do I pronounce his name correctly? Japutsky. Yeah. Well, in that article, he was responding. There was a discussion among Zionists about what is the future relationship with the Palestinian population. There were some Jews from the 1920s who said, look, we got to live with these people as equals uh, if we really want this to succeed. And Japutsky responded in that article, Iron Wall, saying we can't. We cannot do that. So th my point is, even back in the, in the 1920s, they were talking. He was responding to the argument about those who said, 
let's have a one-state solution. You know, at that point, uh, you know, certainly among Jews and Zionists, those who wanted their own state won out. Won out. You know, won. Uh, same thing with Palestinians. I mean, we've been, there had been, even Yasser Arafat, up until 1971, he was saying, look, in my heart of hearts, I know this won't work unless we have a one-state solution. And he, you know, and he, and he, even though he was going for the two-state solution, he felt he had no choice. But you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, of everything Rafi said, to me, the most significant thing is about preserving our identities, preserving our rights, preserving our security, feeling secure and safe in this place. It's easy to say one-state solution. I mean, if you ask a five or a six-year-old child about, hey, these people are fighting over this, this place, they've been fighting for a high 100 years, what should we do? The natural instinct of a child is to say, hey, why don't we just share it? And that, and that is an answer, but why isn't it that easy, for example? It's not because, let's say, again, Rafi alluded to it, he, he, one of the questions in his mind, what if Palestinians outnumber us one day? What, what, what happens to Jews in light of their history in Europe and, you know, and, and during the Holocaust and before the Holocaust? So this is a significant issue. And this is why I said in my, in my introduction, it has to be a system, whatever we create, it has to be a system that's not, N-O-T, not based on trust. We have to create a system that works whether we trust each other or not. So for example, you know, a, one thing that seems to be important to many is to be, you know, to be able to celebrate your identity. To be to have your identity flourish for Jews to be Jewish without be, fearing anything like they did in the past, and same thing for Palestinians to be Palestinians without being put in jail, without being put in jail just by having our flag, without just being persecuted the way we are now, without having rights. I mean, one example of the of the cruelty of the current system. I mean, you know, during the Corona. During the corona, uh, you know, we're still going through the corona, but there were many Palestinians who were stranded outside. Israel had allowed Israeli citizens, of course, to come back, to fly in. Even though the airports were closed, they allowed Jews to come in. Palestinians had nowhere to go. They were stuck because they, the only way they can go to their own country, Israel, is to go to Jordan. If you're a Palestinian, you can't choose your own airport, which is Ben-Gurion Airport. You can't even use it. So we have to go to Jordan. The significance of that is Jordan is closed. Jordan Airport is closed. So all the Palestinians, they've been pretty much stranded. So I use that. I only mention that not to complain about it, but really uh, as an example of the system now, the way it why it doesn't work. I'm not a citizen of my own country. This is, this causes so much pain and so much inconvenience, so much difficulty for us that no one can accept the current system. So going back, I was saying, if you ask a child, a child will tell you, share it. The question is, why can't we share it? So obviously, Rafi and I are not smarter than the average person to say, share it. The question is, why not? We know, so, so we both know that neither side trusts the other, that not only neither side trusts the other, they're also, you know, 
they want exclusivity kind of they want this to be their place they want this only to be jews only or for palestinians only and so if you have that situation if you look at what both sides want if you look at what both sides want if you actually go even beyond what they're saying in their mouths and actually look inside their heart i can probably guess what both sides want if they had a genie and had a wish every jew would probably wish that Palestinians disappear, and every Palestinian will probably wish that every Jew disappear. Well, that's the only thing you can't have. With the idea of a federation, with the concept of a federation, is that you can, you can still have an Israel and a Palestine. That doesn't change. They're states, but states like we have in the United States, like New York and New Jersey, each state makes its, its own laws. It can still call, the state of Israel can still call itself a Jewish state, can still celebrate all the Jewish holidays, can still do all that. It's still Israel. And then you have Palestine. But then we are attached to each other and we are attached to each other's land. So obviously complete separation doesn't work because I won't be satisfied and I'll only accept it as long as I'm weak. So there has to be free movement of labor and people because I'm attached to Nazareth. I'm attached to Yaffa. When I go to Nazareth, when I what when I see the you know uh, the church in Nazareth or the mosque, these things mean something to me. These things mean something to me. So I'm attached to that place. So the idea of a federation gives you a couple of benefits. One benefit is you you know you run your own future. You decide your own fate. You basically make the decisions that affect your life in your state, in your state, because the idea of the state within the country, the state makes all the decisions. A federal government, it only has the power to do the things that we give it the power to do. So, um, so uh, you know, and, and then there's become the issue of, you know, again, again, what if one side out numbers the other how do you deal with that so you want to have a system you know where if the if the numbers change it doesn't change the system i had suggested as an example i said look the, the state government stay like it is but for the federal government we can do like we have in the u.s senate here in the united states in the u.s senate each state produces two senators or gets to send two senators to Washington DC, regardless of population. Why do we do that here? So that the big state doesn't overpower the small states. They have the same power, at least in the Senate. I say we can do something similar to that in Israel-Palestine. We can actually say that regardless of what the population is, the Knesset or parliament or whatever you wanna call it, it's 50% Palestinian and 50% Jewish, regardless of population. So even, even the Palestinians inside Israel or the Jews inside Palestine, like the settlers, they would count as part of that 50%. And, there, and again, this is just an example, a suggestion that I throw out there. Like, and, 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 and you know, I'm, I'm not gonna pretend like I can give you the details. These are things that need to be discussed. But it, it's, uh, I say 50-50, the reason that makes sense to me is let's say, for example, you have a member of the Kahana group in the Knesset and you have a member of Hamas in the Knesset. 
and they want to, you know, produce their crazy bills, whatever they want. Well, if it's 50-50, you're going to need at least one person from the other side voting with you for a federal proposal to pass. You at least need one person. So if I got someone from Kahana that wants to pass a law to kick all Palestinians out, it's highly unlikely he's going to get one person from the other side to vote with him. So by this system, you naturally have the moderates or those who want to live together rule. You their voice is more likely to be the louder voice. And then, and then, you know, but I realize for some Jews, this is still not a good enough system. You know, I say, you know, we can have also national guards. We can have national guards. I would say take the entire Israeli military as we know it now and make it Israel's national guard, the state of Israel's national guard. And then we can have a federal military, a federal military of both of us. The reason I say take Israel's entire military and make it your national guard, if you want that extra security, if you want to feel, hey, you know, if, if we give Palestinians equal rights, that it might be dangerous, okay, take your military, make it your state national guard for that extra security. So I'm going to end with this. I'm going to leave you with this. I want to bring you to the issue of slavery in America. Now, I remember... You know, it lasted almost 300 years. And they did it so comprehensively here. Not only did they change their names, they changed their history, they made them forget about their history, and they tried to convince blacks that they were subhuman, that this was normal. And they taught them that for a couple of hundred years, but in the end, it didn't work. It did not work. Why? And the question is, why is it that when we taught this person, we said to you, you know, Mr. Black person, you have dark skin, you can't, you know, we think you're, you're descended of an ape, not from Adam. We think you come from a monkey. This is who you are, right? That's what they basically told him. But it didn't work. It didn't work. How did, how did that black person know that he was human? How did he know to reject this? And I think there's something within each human being. There's a compass inside every human being that lets them know when they're not being treated equally to other human beings and they don't like it. They will never accept it. I mean, if you have children, try to give one of you children something and not give the other child something. See what will happen. It's not going to happen. So to me as a Palestinian, you know, I, I see these debates among Jews, say, some saying they want to give me this, some saying they want to give me that. I'm telling you right now, if it's not equal rights, you might as well not give it to me because I'm not going to accept it. And just because I don't fight you, it doesn't mean I'm not accepting it. It means I'm going to, I'll wait, but in the end, if I don't have a system that's based on equal rights, if I'm not treated as an equal human, as any Jew, if, if the state, if the country doesn't treat me as equal, if it doesn't have blinders on that doesn't even see religion, I want the state, the federal government, not even to see religion in their relationship to the people of this land. So like for here, here in the U.S., we don't put our religions on papers. No one even knows our religion. When I walk down the street, no one knows my religion. There's no preference for one religion or the other. 
And that's a better system. That's a better system. Uh, now this is the final conclusion. When we, when we as people suggest plans for peace, in a way, we're prophesizing. We are prophesizing. We're, we're doing a lot of guesswork. We're trying to say, if you do A plus B, you'll get Y, or you'll get X, and here's X. So in a way, since we don't have all the variables, and since this is not science, we can't say for sure what the result would be, so we're prophesizing. But I say, in this case, we don't need to prophesize. We do not. We can look at the situation on the ground and see what works and what doesn't. So let's look. Israel divides Palestinians into several different categories. You have 50% of them, of course, outside the country and not allowed to come back in. You got those in Gaza, you got those in the West Bank, you got those in Jerusalem, and you got those inside Israel. The ones inside Israel are citizens, the ones in Jerusalem are not citizens, but residents of Jerusalem and residents of Israel. The ones in the West Bank are neither one of those things, but they have slightly more freedom than the ones in Gaza, and the ones in Gaza are in prison. So let's look how these four different Palestinians respond to Israel. Let's look at those who have it worse, and look at the ones who have it best. The ones, I don't know if there's any dispute, the ones who have it worse are the ones in Gaza. The ones who have it best are the ones in Nazareth, for example, inside Israel. So let's look at their relationship to the Jews, how they respond to Jews. When was the last time you saw a person from Nazareth or Haifa sent a, a Qassam rocket at Israel? When was the last time that someone from Yaffa went and blew himself up? When was the last time, you know, uh, someone from Imm al-Fahim took his, uh, his van to ram Jews. I don't know of any incidents in which that happened. I don't know, I don't know that, I don't know of any, if there's any instance during the first and second intifada where the people in Nazareth participated. I don't know that they participated. I don't know that they threw rocks at Israeli soldiers. So, but now you look at Gaza, it has constant problems with Israel. How could you expect the people from Gaza to respond any other way? I mean, they're living in a situation they don't like. They hate it. They see no way out of it, except, you know, in, in their minds, they see no way out of it. So they use the only method they know. And, you know, so I say, you don't need to prophesize. Look, you tell me the minute, the, you know, the, by the way, 80% of the people from Gaza are not from Gaza. And the only reason I say this, they're from Israel proper, right? These are people who left in 1948, they went to Gaza. The only reason I mention that is they're related to the people in Nazareth, they're related to the people in Haifa and Yaffa. And so you can't say these are different people when you, 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 when you, when you search for an answer as to why the ones in Nazareth are not fighting, and why the ones in Gaza are are, are fighting. And so you, they're, they're, they're the same family, they're related to each other. So in conclusion, I don't think you have to prophesize as to what works between us. 
it's already been proven. It's already been proven. Even though Israel, what you call Israeli Arabs, we call them Palestinians, but what you call Israeli Arabs, um, they're still living in their country. In theory, they have equal rights under the law. Not complete equal rights, but enough for them not to resist. Not to resist physically. So they'll, they'll resist in the Knesset, they'll have, uh, I don't remember her name, Zogbi, go out yelling and screaming, uh, or you'll have uh, Ayman Noor or any one of the Knesset members. You know, they'll fight on the ground, but not fight physically. And that's where I leave it off. It's got to be one state. We, you cannot do what America couldn't do. You cannot do what South Africa couldn't do. Don't you think they talked about separation at some point? They did. We talked about it here in the U.S. before, before integration. We talked about separating, creating a state for black people. In the end, it, it didn't work. Same thing in South Africa. They considered for years the idea of cutting the country and, and you know, sending the blacks somewhere. But in the end, they realize whether it's economically or anything else, this stuff is not feasible. So, so I say the fact that, you know, us among Palestinians, they always tell you, it's a saying that comes from Islam, you know, don't hate something bad because it might be good for you in the long term. And so to us, the fact that there's the two-state solution failed, I don't see that as a bad thing. I see this as, as good for us in the long term, as if God is really helping us, steering us the right way. Because how are you going to tell take people who are attached to every square inch and tell them, we got to separate you? They're still attached. The Palestinians have been gone for 70 years, but their grandkids who've never been to Palestine or Israel are just as attached. And I only mention that because I remember reading in Avishlam's book where they talked about some of the earlier Zionist leaders where they're saying, look, as long as we keep these people away for several decades, their children will forget. Their children will forget about this place. That whole system didn't work. And to, to give you the best example, I was at a conference a few years ago. There were a bunch of Palestinian Christians from Honduras and from, uh, from Chile. And, you know, they have a lot down there. And these are people who left 70 years ago, right in 1948. <clears throat> Their parents initially, you know, to help them assimilate and integrate, they didn't want them, you know, to talk about their heritage. They didn't give them Palestinian names. They gave them Spanish Christian names. I mean, they were Christian, but they gave them Spanish names. Like, uh, 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 Yuhanna or, or became Juan, for example. And so, but now they, I was at this conference, it's their kids and their grandkids, even though their parents went out of their way to not tell them anything about their history, their grandkids on their own rediscovered it, even though they don't speak a word of Arabic. And all they know is Homos and Palestinian rights. That's all they know. So if, if Israel was counting on us forgetting if that was the master plan, you'd have to wonder whether it worked or not. I don't think it worked. Yeah. So thank you, uh, Kamal. I, I want to reinforce something you said because I, I think it's essential to understanding 
you know, where we're at and what we need to do to solve this conflict. You mentioned that humans have this internal compass when they understand that they're unequal. And there's actually science to back up their, their, that claim. I've heard that term, I've heard that term described as mimetic desire. We want what our neighbors have and we're not satisfied unless we have at least some similar status to them. And they've proven this with, I think, chimpanzees that also they get very, they start fighting when there's inequality. There's also data to support um, the idea that you, you often hear that poor people are more likely to commit crime, more likely to be violent, but that's actually not true. It's when you are poor in relation to your neighbors is when poor people begin to become violent. So equality is not only a moral imperative, it is an essential aspect of the human psyche in order to achieve well-being. So we need to understand how essential equality is across the board in order to, to solve any conflict we have. So I think that's a very important point. Uh, Rafi, all of you on the Federation, what does it look like to you? How do we sure. make it work? So uh, I just to mention something Kamal said, that there there's this dream of uh, Israelis to wish away all the Palestinians. For me, I, I definitely would not wish away the Palestinians. I have a lot of you know, friends and coworkers and people I, I really enjoy. And for me, it would be, it'd be something to be missing here. We didn't have all the Palestinians. To me, it's not uh, my, my wish is that everyone gets to come back and we don't have politicians having squabbles amongst each other, keeping people out of the country because of their problems. You know, people should just be able to come and live and, we, you know, and like and make some kind of system so where the politicians are, are happy with the amount of power they have and, you know, and working in our benefits so that we could just live as if how, we, how we'd really want to. And, and I, something I, that I saw about the idea that, that Palestinians would never forget. I mean, as a Jewish person, I, I completely recognize that in ourselves that, you know, we had been gone here for, you know, 1800 years or so. Uh, 1900 years and we never forgot and we, we we would tell ourselves generation after generation we're coming back to Israel for forever until we made it a reality and you, know, you believe you tell yourself something long enough you make it happen so and I, I think that's gonna happen with the Palestinians they haven't let go and so I don't really see that that happening so I, I'm with Kamal in terms of the Federation although where I'm I'm becoming more and more open to to not caring about the details of the rules of what the of what the Federation is on I'm not sure that what Israelis are worried about is is all all the the dotting their eyes and crossing the t's. That's what I that's what I found as I at least in my perspective as I've been talking to more and more Israelis. It's more the the idea that we touched on earlier about the the indigenous rights is they believe it's not right. They don't they believe that they're the Palestinians are foreigners and they're the natives in some way and therefore they don't have to do this and they're like stuck in this this you know. This, this mindset that they have to be superior. Now you, you brought up Jabotinsky, which was interesting. So Jabotinsky didn't really see it that way. Jabotinsky, when he set an iron wall, he was talking about everyone outside. He wanted a state where it was equal, where he had 51% Jews and 49% Arabs. He wanted to basically, he attacked the, he was in, in, in favor of attacking the British and, and throwing them out of here and basically standing up to everyone in the world who was gonna stop them from making the state. But he actually wrote about having you know, alternate presidents between a Palestinian and a, and a Jew, or, or an Arab and a Jew in his in his mentality. So, and so that's you know, for me, I don't I don't care if it's 59, 49, or forty nine forty nine fifty nine. I've sort of, as I've gotten, you know, gone further in this in, in development, I feel like it's more if if 
11 million Palestinians in the world believe I have the right to be here, I do. You know, then nothing's going to stop me from being here. And if 16 million Jews believe that 11 million Palestinians have the right to be here, they just do. It doesn't matter what the UN says. It doesn't matter what America says or the EU. We have the keys and you have the keys for us. And there's not peace until these 27 million people agree to like, basically to agree to what you said, the, the first sentence that came out of, out of Kamal in the beginning of this discussion that I recognize the Jews have historical and emotional and religious ties to all of the land and I support them. And, and, and the Palestinians need to hear that from the, from the Jews. And once you get that, I think the details will be less, be less important. So, but to get back to Adar's question, what do I think it would look like? I'm open to various models of what a federation would be. I, I helped, you know, Kamal when he was writing his plan. I wrote plans originally for, for a confederation where it would be like two states and technically each side would have your own passport, but you'd have a shared capital in Jerusalem. It'd be almost like the EU. You could go to the other state. You could live in the other state. So it was a two states, one homeland. There was a, an, earlier, an earlier version. As I've gotten more into it, I feel like if people would really accept each other as fellow natives, it doesn't really matter. And now I think I'd rather have one passport that says the United States of Israel and Palestine on it. And, and to have 27 million Jews and Palestinians believe in that. And then that would make me, make me safer than, than how exactly to structure. But if we're going to structure it, I feel like there's two models you could do. Or there's the model that Kamal is suggesting where you make it half Jewish and, and you make three parliaments essentially, a Palestinian parliament, a Jewish parliament, and then a 50-50 mixed parliament, which is one idea. It's fairly reasonable. Another idea I, I had, I, I had also uh, been in touch with the people called the Federation Movement. I helped them like drop a map for their Greece plan. Kamal went with me to the Knesset to, uh, to talk to people about that plan. Um, so I, which would be more, that idea is more like, like maybe like Switzerland or like the United States, where you'd have two parliaments instead of three. You'd have one parliament that was elected generally just by the population, like you have like the House of Congress. And the other parliament would be, would be the senators, and you divided the whole country into regions, and and each place would have two senators. Now the way you can make it 50-50 is you just make, you know, half the regions you you gerrymander the districts, and then half the regions are Palestinian regions, and half the regions are Israeli regions, and you do that as the starting point. And over time, people will move around and shift, but I figure in the long run, hopefully, political parties will be less. You know, you won't have a Jewish party and an Arab party. You'll just have conservatives and liberals. And, and me and Kamal would be in, on the, the, you know, for the Israel-Palestine Republicans supporting them instead of, you know, and maybe Adar would support the, the Israel-Palestine Democrats. I don't know. But um, we could, it wouldn't be so much where you'd have parties where, like, you have now, we have the Joint List, which is an all-Arab party, where you have, you know, far-left communists and, like, conservative religious Muslims. And, it doesn't make sense. And then you have a, an, an ultra-Orthodox party that says, you know, some kind of crazy ideas also, and but has enough clout to get to get their, their agenda into the government. So ultimately, I look more toward, you know, like a two-party system where you have more liberals and conservatives and people stop voting along ethnic lines. So I'm even open, honestly, to a, a version where you, like, like what I said, like, like America, where you'd have to divide the country into regions, not really where you just make regions that are just very gerrymandered and only Palestinians in this region, only Palestinians. Just make totally mixed regions. Have like a, a Judea region, have like a coastal region, have a, a greater Tel Aviv region, uh, you know, a, a northern Galilee region. Just have regions and people in that region could learn to get along with each other. Get a region that was half Jews and half Arabs. 
but on them wasn't the responsibility for what to do with the whole country. They just got to run, you know, Western Galilee. Okay, so they, how, how do you want the school system in Western Galilee to go? How do you want, you know, the police force to be? I mean, each group, you have to be a little bit mixed. Like you have in America, you have in Chicago and in Baltimore and in Washington, Virginia. Virginia is a state with, with black people and white people and Hispanic people, and they've got to figure out how to make it work. You don't have black states and white states and Hispanic states where everyone gets to have portions going to the government. So I'm, I'm even open to that, but in order to get, I think, like it to be like America, you have to have that idea. You have to have, you know, when I, I was when I was a kid, I was in a Jewish school, and eventually I was like a troublemaker, and like in fifth grade, they asked me to leave, and I went to a public school. And one of the first things that, that the formative memories I have is I was in a circle with all these with all these kids, you know, black kids and white kids and Indian kids, Jewish kids, and everyone was singing like Michael Jackson, Heal the World, Make It a Better Place, you know, this song, and and I was like, wow, you know, I've been like in a, my whole life in a place where everyone was exactly my same culture, but here and like you know, people were afraid of the outside culture. They didn't want us to like, you know, if you if you meet them, they're gonna like change how your your beliefs. And here's like American public school where you just mix everyone together and people just make it happen. So you know, and they do that by by having American values, by having values that like. You know, all men are created equal, and that you pledge allegiance to the flag, one nation under God, indivisible, liberty and justice for all. So I feel like the United States of Israel Palestine can be built on those values. And it's more, those are more important, I think, than the details of exactly the strategy for making, for forcing this equality, or making it half Jewish and half Arab. Although I'm not, I'm open to discussing with those who want it to be very, very rigidly half Jewish, half Arabs in terms of, in terms of the parliamentary system. Uh, you know, or something like like Switzerland, you have you have districts that are Italian Swiss, French Swiss, and and German Swiss, and they're very they're very like homogenous within their their cantons, they're called. And then they have certain numbers of representatives in the in the federal system. So I'm I'm open in terms of the how exactly to do the boundaries of this, you know, um, of our federation. Uh, you know, because you know you get a few different people, everyone's going to have a different, a slightly different opinion. So I don't want to be like it's got to be my federation. But I'm so I'm, I'm I'm a little flexible, but I'm even flexible in the direction of like just do it like the United States of America, and you build it on on those values that they built America. You have the Constitution, you have the, the Declaration of Independence, and those those values can hold us together. And it also it goes back to the, the indigenous rights, the belief that both of these people are, are really native, and that you know if 11 million Palestinians are going to fight for my right to be here, and 16 million Jews are going to fight for the right of 11 million Palestinians to be here. And we don't have a problem. So that, and that's, that's what I right. think. And, and that's right. I mean, it, um, yeah, that's it. I'll just say this. I'll leave it. I don't want to take it from you, Adar. Go ahead. No, um, I, I do want to move to some audience questions. Um, th this session will be slightly shorter than what we normally do just because we started late. Um, here in Israel, it's already 10.30 p.m. on a Thursday. I want to start my weekend. But... Also, the, um, the amount of ground that we covered has been more than what we normally do in two-hour sessions. And if there's one thing that I've learned in the 10 debates that I've now hosted, it seems like there's a growing consensus that the two-state solution is dead. The two-state solution is highly flawed. People don't want to split the land. There are a set of challenges. How do we live together? What do we do about demographic issues? What do we call it? But it seems like if we approach this in good faith 
and have these types of conversation, it seems like none of these challenges cannot be overcome. Um, I, I want to remind the audience, if you want to reach out to Rafi or Kamal, their contact information is in the description, as is mine. We are all happy to engage in dialogue. Feel free to reach out to any of us. If you're new to this channel, please subscribe. We're doing two around two debates a week and some other exciting content. And if you enjoy this video, please give it an upvote. And if you didn't like it, give it a downvote. You're free to do as you wish. Um, just express yourself. Uh, we're going to move to some questions. Before we move to some questions, uh, Kamal and Rafi, is there anything short you want to summarize with? I, I would say uh, if you do, two minutes. If not, we'll move straight to questions. I mean, I, I saw a question, but uh, about about the um, the Alexa Mosque. Yeah, let me bring it up. Sure. Or some, I, I maybe it wasn't a question. Maybe it was just a sort of a comment. Yeah. Well, but here's in a question form. Uh, Moshe re-asked it. Thank you, Moshe, for the question. As a Muslim, are you touched by the fact that we don't have a temple to pray? You have Mecca. It's a religious war. Let's face it. So you guys are both free to respond to that. So it's not a it's not a religious war to you. It might be. I mean, to me, it might be to you. And uh, so, to me, I told you what it's about. It's about equal rights. I'm attached to that land. My parents, my family, goes back to the time of Prophet Zechariah. We're blood relatives, not the Jewish Prophet Zechariah, the one who was taking care of Jesus Christ. He was living in Ain Karim. My family actually goes back to that. So I don't really see it as a, as a religious war. I've, ne I've just never seen it this way. But, you know, religion makes your identity, and, and so it does have an impact. And, you're a and this guy named Moshe Jaja, you know, is asking me whether I'm touched by the fact that Jews don't have a, a place to pray. Or other Jews have asked me the same question, you know, they want me to desegregate my mosque. Well, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird question to someone like me to ask me to desegregate my mosque where we can pray together when the whole country is segregated. Mm -hmm. I don't even, I can't even go on most of the roads in Israel, and yet you're asking me to share with you the most intimate. That's like asking me to share my wife. I mean, it's one thing, you know. I would feel a lot easier to share the, my mosque with with any Jew if I felt I was part of this country. And there's the theological basis for it. I mean, it goes down, it goes back to the time of Prophet Muhammad. Uh, you know, issues of race are not as big of a deal for us because early on in the seventh century, they redefined what it, what it means to be an Arab. And it became that anyone who speaks Arabic is an Arab. So the concept of ethnicity or race is not as strong for us as it is for, let's say, you. Uh, you know, same thing, that same ideology, uh, belief went through the Palestinians. Palestinians, what we define as Palestinian, it's not based on blood, or it's not based on ethnicity. Basically, we say anyone who's lived from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea at any time in history is Palestinian. We're very open to it. We're very open to it. If you go to the old city right before you go to the Aqsa Mosque, you see some Africans there. These Africans, I don't know if you know them, but you know they uh, know who I'm talking about, but you see some clear Africans. Yeah. 
Well, these people came, they actually walked to Jerusalem from Africa during the time of Saladin. They came to fight for Jerusalem and sat there. And some of them actually walked in the 1940s, before the 1948 war. By the time they got there, the war was over. But it just shows you how important this place to the general population. And I lost my train of thought on your question. I was going to a point. What was yeah. the point? I just want to remind you about, come out real quick. I just, I want to, let, let's try to leave the responses to at least two minutes because I want you both to have an opportunity to the questions and I want us to. Oh yeah, to it was, I was responding to one of these guys. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw another interesting one, but I'll, I'll do the Temple Mount. Yeah, okay, like so for us, you know, there's a religious basis to us sharing a religious place. It's probably the only religion. In, in Damascus, we have the Umayyad Mosque where John the Baptist is buried. That's a place where Muslims and, and Christians pray. During the time of Prophet Muhammad, he was meeting with a Christian delegation in the Medina Mosque. And it was their time to pray. The Prophet left the mosque so that they can pray, the Christians. So we have a historical basis to sharing and praying with others. But it just seems kind of disingenuous to come and ask me to share my most intimate place when I don't even have basic rights in the country. So to you, uh, Moshe, when you, know, when, you, when you tell me, yeah, Kamal, you can live here as equal, I would hold you, I would walk hand in hand with you to go up to the, to the mosque where you can pray with me. I'm cool with it. I don't, you know, why would I, I object to that? We're going to worship God together. Why would I object to that? My religion doesn't forbid me from doing that. That's it. Great. Uh, did, did you, Rafi, did you want to add to... Uh, uh, sure. I can tell a story just related to what Kamal just said. The, the only one time I tried to go up to the, to the Dome of the, to the Temple, the Dome of the Rock, I was walking with a friend of mine from Hebron who had gotten a permit to come here. And the, the day before, I took him to the beach in Tel Aviv. And the next morning, he wanted to go pray at Al-Aqsa Mosque. He said, come with me. I'm like, what are you, crazy? He's like, don't worry about it. I was wearing my kippah and walking there with a sea of Muslims, like dressed up in, in kufis and traditional robes and everything. Shoulder to shoulder, everyone like, you know, and no one did anything to me. The only one who stopped me was a Jewish soldier with a kippah and said, you couldn't come up here. And, I, and, no, and no one had a problem with me. It was very, it was, it was strange. And then I like hugged my friend and said, bye, and, you know, okay, I'll see you when you get down. And that, that was it. But uh, to, to us Jews, it is really, the, the Temple Mount is the most sacred place in the, in, in the world. And it is, as, as someone who feels about indigenous rights, it is very important for us to be, to, for us to have rights to go up there and pray. But I, I completely agree with Kamal when he says, why should I, you know, you're not giving me equal rights to like be, a, to breathe in my own country, you know, like to be, to be, a, to be a free person. So why should I like give up the one last thing that I'm holding, my one last card? So I, I, I hear that. So, but I, I feel like it's sort of, it's almost like a Mexican standoff. But I feel like I, it's something that Palestinians should be more open with. Because I know that like when you talk about Temple, you no way, we'll fight for the last man to save Al-Aqsa. We'll send a million Muslims marching to Al-Aqsa. And so like that's, it, it becomes sort of a conflict over, over that site, which to, to Jews is the, is the most holy site in the world. And, and we feel that we have indigenous rights. I, I, I think we do. If this was a, a Jewish religious site before it was a Muslim site. It, it's a Muslim site because Islam is 90% Jewish anyways, 
Like it's, we're almost the same religion, and that's why we obviously care about the same sites because we have the same stories. So obviously it's an important place for both of us. But so finding a way to share it in the context of obviously a, a, a free country where people can come return and live as equal people, I think should be part of the conversation of me, you know, and not dismiss like, oh, you know, but you didn't really dismiss it. You said, you know, listen, if you want to share your country with me, I'll walk, walk hand in hand with you. So it's something that more Palestinians, I should hear from more Palestinians at least. Look, you know, you know, Palestinians are a lot more, I mean, the Palestinians are a lot more liberal than you realize on these issues. I told you, like actually, you know, and I, I don't, when I talk about Palestinians, I don't really like to talk, uh, to say I am you know, even a Muslim because I don't want to even take the chance of offending my Christian brothers. But Muslims, generally when when all else equal when we don't feel like someone's trying to destroy our mosque when we don't feel like someone's trying to kick us out we would actually be holding your hand and begging you to come with us to the mosque we have a completely different ideology we don't see it as something that we need to keep you away from to the contrary most muslims think we get points if we bring you to pray with us you know so but the the our passionate opposition to all this is the fact that we are just persecuted in, in in Israel, the fact that we're unequal in this country. And it just seems bizarre and insincere to us that you tell me, hey, I want to pray in the same place you do, and I, and I have to sneak in to come into my own country. It yeah. doesn't make sense. I mean, it's just too uh, premature. Kamal, I, you know, I think it's, I, I think it's a very good point that it's how can we even have a conversation about you know equality on Temple Mount given the the current power dynamic and also the point that it's very hard to understand what Palestinians truly feel given the current power dynamic. That being said, I I would say there there it's legitimate to be concerned with how minorities may be treated under a Muslim rule country because. The, the Middle East is not known to have great minority rights, and we have seen persecution of Christians and Jews in many Middle Eastern countries where Muslims are powerful. So, uh, you know, I, I do need to push back on this point. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not. It's not obvious that it's such a clear case to make to be made that that given uh, Muslims being the, pa the the powerful population, that minorities will be treated well because currently we're not seeing that in many Middle Eastern countries. We're people at war currently with Jews. I, I say this, and I don't know how accurate it is. It's the same author that I that I, I mentioned earlier, Avish Lime, and he mentioned several different programs where Jews were persecuted throughout the world, and we're saying that in most instances, those who ran away came to Muslim majority countries. You know, there was just a lot, I mean, the, you can't just ignore the fact that a lot of Jews, like prior to Israel, there were Jews in almost every Arab country. There were Jews in Libya, there were Jews in Morocco, there were Jews in Algeria, there were Jews in, in Egypt. Right. They survived thousands of years. And I don't think it's coincidence that they, on, they you know, they left or got kicked out only after 1948. So you can't ignore the thousands of years before and you're going to have to explain that when others persecuted you, why did you come to us? You must have felt there was some safety 
in coming to us. You must have felt that or you, or you wouldn't have come to us. So I don't know how genuine these arguments are. You cannot judge our relationship now, today, in the last 40 years, when we are a people at war. You know, I see Jews all the time. They'll take some Palestinian somewhere and they'll say, look at what he said. He said, we're the scum of the earth. This is what people do when they're at war. Do you need to come here like during World War II? You see, look at American newspapers and see how they describe uh, Adolf Hitler or Mussolini or, you know, the emperor of Japan. You usually make fun of them. You usually attack them. You usually make the other side feel, you know, you describe them as idiots, as violent. That's what people do when they're at war. So you have to put things in the right context. I'm able, maybe Rafi and I are able to do it. Maybe maybe we're able to, to, to separate our emotions from logic. I don't know. Maybe the fact that we grew up in America makes us feel like this. I don't know. But I'm telling you right now, you got two Jews and, and you know, our huge audience of four people, you know, I want them to know. <laughs> that was a joke. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done it. No, we got you know, a good, got a good know, I, we got a good crowd. I, I want to, you know, our audience to know. I'm telling you, if you care what Palestinians think, look at me. If I had equal rights in my own country, I would. I wouldn't care less how many Jews live there. I would welcome all Jews from all over the world. It's all about me and my rights. I don't have rights in my own country. Yeah. This is a problem for me. I'd say, I'd say that that's a fair point, populations at war. I, I'd expand on that because I think we could trace declining minority populations prior to the creation of the state of Israel, but the, the case could be made that it also has to do with Western imperialism, which started over 100 years ago when England kind of started carving up the Middle East as they saw fit, and for the past uh, who knows how many decades, the United States has kind of turned the Middle East into their... Uh, you know, playgrounds for, for, you know, for war and, and whatnot. So I, I'd say the case could be made that part of what we see as a radicalization of Middle Eastern countries very well may be fueled by uh, actions with foreign powers. So I, I'd say that that's a legitimate uh, point to be made. And I just want to take my hands out to Naveen Khalid. I see one fan who agrees with me, and that's uh, you're the first this year. Just want you to know that. Shout Especially out! I've only seen my wife in the last year. She's great. Uh, next question from Ron Tal. Ron, thank you for the the question. Given the disparity between Israel and Palestine in regards to LGBTQ plus peoples and how free they are to be who they are, what would one state solution look like for this population? This is a good question because this is a concern that I've, I've heard many Israelis have. They're concerned that given a one-state solution, social issues will change. Um, while Israel has its own sets of challenges, it is leading the region on social issues, and many people are concerned that that will deteriorate. Even if we're only looking at it through the lens of just Jews, there's um, a growing... Um, Haredi uh, community within Israel that also is not progressive on social issues, and that alone concerns many Israelis. How do we alleviate these concerns? Sure. Uh, since I'm leaving in a couple of minutes, maybe I'll address it. 
and I'll leave sure. it to Rafi afterwards. So look, uh, conservative Palestinians, whether Christian or Muslims, are no more conservative than, I, I actually say they're less conservative than conservative Jews that I met. And so whatever system you went through through Israel and you still, I mean, I remember not long ago, there was a demonstration in Israel and there was someone went and stabbing, stabbing some of the LGBT people. So, you know, you can't just say Israel, it, it was a, a cakewalk for you to reach this point. It wasn't, and it still isn't. It's hard all over the world. We still have issues in the United States where gays would be marching and someone will kill them. We have on average two or three people get killed in the United States, okay? So the fact that you would find some Palestinians who support traditional rights, so what? I mean, uh, you know, we can, same thing in Israel. I'm sure my friend Rafi would prefer a world where homosexuality didn't exist because that's what his, re his, his religion teaches. <laughs> But, no, not not. I don't know. I'm too bad of an example. But okay. to me, personally, uh, this is not, uh, personally, it's not something I feel a state should interfere in. It's not the you know the the job of the state to tell people, you know who who they can sleep with for the most part. You know maybe maybe the state can t take decisions on whether they want to legalize marriage or not. That's a different story. But I think you can reach the same conclusion. I mean, Lebanon, before Israel, passed a marriage law for gays. So you can't say that, uh, you know, that Israel only can go through these struggles and come out with the right solution. I, I don't see any reason to not think the same thing could happen among Palestinians. Sure. I would add one thing that Kamal told me actually one time, which I thought was... Uh, was interesting. He explained to me how, how Palestinians, actually Arab society in general, radically changed to being more conservative after the 67 war. And we also, that, and so things are, things are cyclical and similarly happened in, in Israel. Also, both, as the result of that war, the, both sides became more religious and more conservative. So things, things had changed and, all, and, and all, to go back to what you were saying earlier, it, I don't like to look at the past with entirely rose-colored glasses. Even though there were there were tons of Muslims, there were like my wife's family. She was from Iraq. It wasn't always, you know, they weren't always first-class citizens. There were times of, there were that there were that. But there were citizens. Were, but there were yeah, citizens. Every, every, Jew, every Jew was a citizen in every Arabic country. Every Jew was a citizen in every Arabic country. Right, but there, there was also the, the world wasn't very progressive. Also, it, it, there was, no, the world wasn't. It was better than Europe. Europe had got yeah had gotten worse, but 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 then you know starting maybe in the, the 20s or so, the Arab world became very liberal. It looked it looked like America. Or you look at older pictures of Egypt and and the, everyone was super liberal. And then in the 60s, they lost against the Jews, and they're like, oh, God punished us for losing that for losing yeah. the exactly. So now we've That's got the Aqsa Mosque back, and it happened the same thing to the Jewish community. It used to be that Israel was sort of this project of like very secular, liberal, you know, kibbutznik people, people who built kibbutzim. And all of a sudden, after '67, there was this whole movement amongst, amongst my culture, amongst like what we call the Dati Lumi, the religious nationalists. People who were like religious but somewhat modern in America were like, "Oh my God, the Bible is talking to us!" Like you know, God said we were going to come back and 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 be back in Hebron and and Nablus and all these places we were going to get to come home and. 
it's there. It all just it happened. Like, and no one believed it was going to happen. They were they were they thought that the Jews were going to get massacred in '67. There was like a they, they they were stunned. And then all of a sudden, everyone's like you know putting keepers on and wrapping you know and and started praying and becoming there was a whole wave of, of people becoming religious. And the same thing happened to us. I'm gonna leave literally in one minute. So I'm gonna leave it to you. But I just want to say this, you know, just to support your point. I don't remember telling you that, but I'm glad I did. But yeah. like prior, you know, at the, in the 20th century. There was a slight kind of uh, ideological fight between those who wanted Muslim states and those who wanted secular states. And the secular movements won out, hands yeah. down, up until the 1967 war. And then you started seeing the Muslim Brotherhood saying, look, these people are fighting under Judaism. They're fighting under the religion. They want a Jewish state. We have to do a religious state too to combat them. And it just created a disaster Absolutely. for both of us. I have a, a bunch of conservative lunatics who wear the, the kippah and a bunch of conservative lunatics who wear something else. And uh, it just doesn't work in my life. Yeah. I got to go. But I thank you for this discussion. It's really great. Rafi, it's always nice seeing you. You too. I'll be more than happy. Call me back at any time I would do it. And I apologize. I have uh, to leave. Our pleasure. Bye, Kamal. Thank and hopefully you, you get to come back here soon. I hear you, man. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Thanks. Hopefully, Corona will end and we'll all get to hang out again. I muted. Yep. Yep. Oh, I gave Kamal a very nice farewell blessing, and nobody heard. But uh, aye, aye. it's the thought that counts. Yeah, definitely. So, Rafa, you wanna, you wanna? I, I guess j just on that point. Sure. Um, we need to understand that culture supersedes religion, it supersedes geography, it supersedes ethnicity. People often point to the challenges in the, in the Middle East and in the Muslim world when it comes to social issues, when it comes to the extremism we, seem, we, we see. But if you look at how Christians, European Christians acted a few hundred years ago, I mean, they were amongst the most brutal people we've ever seen. And now Europe has some of the lowest crime rates in the entire world. If you look at Scandinavian countries, probably the most peaceful countries in all of Europe, I mean, Scandinavian people have Viking blood running through their veins, and yeah. yet how peaceful they've become. So culture supersedes all these things. And, and what, what we need to do is try to build an environment that, that makes people more peaceful, that makes people more uh, tolerant, and, and that is a society and a culture where we have a mindset of abundance, where we do not have enemies that we are fighting, we're, we're not fighting for our livelihood, for our basic needs, shelter and food. So this is a world, given the technology we have today, we can create a world like this. And, you know, we do see setbacks here and there. But if you look at the, at the global tra trajectory over the past few, uh, few hundred years and even over the past few decades, we're making tremendous progress uh, bringing us to... Um, a place of abundance, of a, of a mindset of abundance. It seems like we are we are uh, facing a new challenge where we have um, abund abundance of material wealth, but a scarcity of meaning, and that's what we're seeing in the Western world. And that's why, as countries become richer, suicide rates increase as well. So we still haven't solved the the whole problem. We need to find a, a way to give people meaning as we we become more abundant. But I, I say it's a you know it's it's a challenge that we we are aware exists and we need to tackle it together. So that's really my thoughts. 
on how to liberalize people and make them more tolerant. We just need to build a better world for all people. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I think it goes back to one of the, the points I said that that um, if we have if we have like a society where everyone feels that they're that they're equal and free and and you know and respects each other, then then we can then we can get to this place where we can base our we can base our society on on strong values like and we can instead of calling it a Jewish state because it's overwhelmingly dominated by Jews, it could be a Jewish state because of Jewish values like you know uh, justice justice you shall pursue and to be kind to the widow and the orphan and the downtrodden. And it was a good story I remember from a, from a Palestinian once that I was, uh, we were walking in Tel Aviv. And we went, we went to the beach and it was like a Ramadan and it was a, on a fast day. And we were, we were heading to a pizza shop and we were walking and he saw a guy on the floor. And he asked me, what is this person doing on the floor? And I, I said, he's poor. Like, I mean, like, why is he sleeping on the floor? And I said, he's poor. He's like, what, homeless people? Like in America? I'm like, yeah, like homeless people. You don't, you don't have homeless people in Palestine? He's like, no. If the guy doesn't have a house, we'll find him a house. I'm like, you know, that's strange. You know, you think of these people as, as your enemy, but that's like a, that's a pretty good value to have. That's, that's what they do in, in Nordic countries, you know? They, they decide that we, we don't want to have homeless people. And so if we could take the, be the best images of ourselves, what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be Israeli, and, and take, synthesize what's the best of that, and the best things of, of Palestinians, and there are good things in their in their culture, and and put that together in our in our country that we can have built on sort of values that uh, that we believe in, and that and that will really protect us more than you know than walls and bombs and 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 everything else, and and so that and so that's what I think will become will help liberalize people, you know when you when you're yeah. raised strong. Mm -hmm with values of tolerance and acceptance. You learn to accept the Jew, you can learn to accept the gay person if you can accept the, you know, yep. right? If you accept Palestinians, you can, it's, it's easier to accept other people. So amen, that's... Amen to that, Rafi. Are those so, your, your final words? Uh, well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, hopefully we could do it again. And, yeah, I think we should, uh, you know, I'd be happy to talk again about one state. And about uh, people who want to argue with me about indigenous rights and what that means. Yeah, uh, Rafi, I'd love to have you back because you made very good points about indigeneity that are contrary to the common narrative we hear. So I will bring you back again to speak to somebody who has the, con the contrary opinion to yours when it comes to indigeneity. Uh, it, it was really a great pleasure hosting you, and I do look forward to having you back. Sure. Thank you. Have a great evening, Rafi. You Talk too. soon. Bye. Hey guys, um, I will stay on for another 10 minutes as I usually do. Um, if anybody has any questions specifically for me, I would be happy to take them. I want to remind everybody that I recently opened a Patreon. For those who are unfamiliar, Patreon is a way to support local artists or content creators. Uh, you can go to the Patreon. It's in the description. You could donate $1 a month, $2 a month, $10 a month, $0 a month. It's up to you. Um, the idea here is this is not my full-time job. I still need to work. I need to put food on the table. I would like to make activism and content full-time, and so my supporting me on Patreon will, will help make that a reality. Uh, I am in the process of uploading exclusive content that will not be on YouTube. It will only be on Patreon for Patreon members. Um, so again, any support would be greatly appreciated. Um, some questions.
I saw one by Sherry that I do want to get to because I, I like the way you frame this. Sherry Sufi, by the way, guys, Sherry Sufi will be on next week. He's a good friend, uh, an academic and a politician from um, Australia. I, I just, uh, Sherry asked if, if uh, being indigenous is about hardware and software. And what he means by that is hardware being DNA, bloodlines, and all that jazz or religion, culture, language, values, and all that jazz. So Sherry, at the beginning, both guests spoke on the topic of indigeneity, and they, and they view it to be both hardware and software, and they actually both view it not as, it's not much of a relevant conversation because you'll never convince the other population that you are more indigenous than them. Rather, we should come from a place of mutual recognition that we all love this land, we all have a right to live on this land, let's work from there. So that's kind of where the conversation uh, about that, that was the conversation on indigeneity. We will explore that deeper next week when you're on with Ryan Belros, who's an indigenous rights activist and an indigenous person from Canada. Question from Kugi. Israel is currently heavily and for a long time dominated by the right. Does this dominance need to end before we can have a proper conversation about coexistence and peace? This is a very difficult question. I'm not even sure I have a coherent response to this. Um, I'm not sure that we need to end. First of all, Rafi, I see that you're still here. You could chime in on these questions if you'd like. I'm not sure it's one needs to come before the other. I think it's a process that that we we approach simultaneously. I think the more activists like us speak up uh, uh, about the importance of equality and the importance of living together. We can change minds. And one of the favorite, my favorite quotes that I like to live by is that one to change a few, few to change many, many to change the world. When I do activism, I don't think that I'm going to change the world. I don't think I'm going to bring world peace. It's just about changing a few minds. And I think if we all, you know, approach it that way, then we can have a tremendous impact. And you know, everybody who's watching this right now, uh, recognize your ability to Im impact others. Uh, you can impact others and the people you impact will then go on and impact more people. So I, again, I don't have a, f a full answer to that question because it's very challenging, but I, th that is what I would tell you. Do not underestimate your ability to impact change. I'm gonna bring Rafi back because he does have something to say on this issue. Sure. Rafi, I missed you. Uh, it's been a long time. So, in terms of right and left, I don't think it's so clear cut who which side is going to do better. I'll tell you, I was actually uh, a member of the central committee of the by the UD party. So I've been, I've been on the right, and then some people consider me left. I feel like there's a new a new wave of people that are like me and maybe Rudy and and Yuda Cohen, who I really like, who you had the other week, who are like you see it sort of like a triangle. There's like the left. There's the right, and then there's this new group of people who are like, we're we're really we're really Jewish. We're not like gonna like you know abandon our identity and lie about how we really feel about you know our connection to our land, but we're we're not gonna do it at the expense of of you know mistreating our cousins. That doesn't that I didn't come here for after two thousand years to like pick on my cousins. That doesn't make sense to me. To me, being a Zionist means you can always you can always go home. But, you know, that's like the central, you know, and right of return is sacred and eternal, which I feel like something that Palestinians could jump on. 
But when you get there, you don't have to beat up your cousins. Like that, that's not the point, you know? So I, it doesn't have to be a competition. So I, I feel like the current left in Israel, maybe they're starting, there's a little bit of breakaway, but they've been hard on, hardcore on the, on the two-state solution. It's very hard to move them off that, that, that line. So I, I don't feel like the mainstream left in Israel is going to take you in that direction either. And, and, sort of, and the hard right in Israel also not. You really, you really need a, a, new, a new movement, but, it, but it's growing. I feel like there's, a, there's an opportunity between the Trump plan looking so ridiculous and like being so obvious that like, you know, this is just going to lead to a one-state solution. This is not really a, a functional two-state solution. This is sort of like a, an autonomy, like, you know, this is like uh, in Indian reservations in America, what was left for them, which it, which it sort of reminded me, and we, we know what happened there. Eventually, they all became citizens of America. And then... Or, or very not not too dissimilar to what happened in South Africa. If people are familiar with the, the details of that, but and then and then with coronavirus, because like you know, how much do you care about how your state reflects your identity when you're you can't even go outside without a mask on? You know, like what does that even mean? You know, people are people are open to a change now. I feel like people, you know, this this is the time, but it's not going to be like ah, boo the right, and when the left will come, they'll they'll make one state. They they didn't do that. Rabin wouldn't have. You know, Rabinu would agree with Trump's plan. So it's it's not the traditional right or the left. It needs to be something new. But I think it's going to happen. I, I I'd agree with that. It's not it's it's not the right way to look at it. Right versus right or left. I'd say there is potential for both sides to achieve peace. I think the concern with the right is that they very rarely focus on human rights of the Palestinians. Um, not much recognition really of their right to self-determination or to even live here as equals. And you mentioned Yehuda Cohen and Rudy Rahman and Inondan Kehati, and I think they're really starting to change the narrative because they're coming from, essentially, you know, their solution looks right in keeping the land whole, but they're very, very invested in the concept of uh, equal rights for all people. And currently when you look at the the left has dominated the conversation on human rights. They the only way they've succeeded to do that is because the right has not done a good enough job, uh, you know, spe speaking that tune. So I would say that I I would like to see it you know more more talk on human rights come out of the right, uh, and and I think it's possible because as you mentioned we are seeing a growing amount of people doing doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one last thing, I'm going to do this. I'm not in the game of shame, but I did see a nasty comment, and I'm going to highlight it because whoever is writing comments in this chat needs to know that that means they're open to it being public. And, you know, we do these peaceful conversations, and if you want to come here and be nasty, well, at least face the consequences. Here we go. Moshe, I, I don't think you're a bad guy in any way, shape, or form. I, I You know, whatever in your life you know, cause you to feel the, the need to be nasty to people you don't know, that's on you. I, I hope you could grow past that. But, you know, you wrote, bye, Kamal, I will not miss you. What the hell did Kamal say that would make you want to treat him that way? He said he he respects and loves Israelis and wants to live here in peace with them. What, just just because you disagree with some of what he says, you, you, you want to act nasty? Come on, brother. We can do better than that. Yeah. 
it, you know, I'm, I just see this as one of the way to uh, make the comment thread a more peaceful place by addressing it instead of ignoring it and let it fester. Yeah, uh, I, I, just don't, I think that guy doesn't really get Kamal. I mean, he wrote, he, wrote, he posted uh, the Psalms 137, which is the song by the rivers of Babylon, you know, as we wept, we remembered Zion. So, like, I don't think Kamal has any problem with that. Probably that that's what we were talking about in this whole conversation. Like, he's like, I get it. Like, I, I've, I've been dreaming about coming back to Palestine my whole life. You've been dreaming of coming back to Israel. Let, let's, you know, let's do it together. You know, why? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, it, to hear what Kamal says and somehow think that you don't yeah. like him, I mean, I, I don't even see how that's that's possible. Uh, yeah. Super reasonable guy who just wants to live here in peace. Yeah. Uh, but but we do need to recognize how much pain there is in this conflict and how much trauma both sides have. And, you know, that trauma and pain, it, it hardens us. It makes us more extreme. This is what we were talking about. So when we see behavior like this, we need to understand that's not born in a vacuum. That is a result of a life of... Um, of fear and pain and trauma so you know we should be able to understand where it comes from but you know let, let, let's try to evolve past that um, a, a lot of what I want to focus on as an activist is not just a revolution of political systems it's evolution of the human consciousness it's it's looking inward and seeing how we can become the best versions of ourselves uh, this is work that I'm constantly doing every single day and yeah. small steps and it's something that you know I, I, I yearn that more people take upon themselves to just grow as human beings. And I'd say that seems like a pretty solid place to leave it. Uh, Rafi, feel free to give one final word if, if you'd like. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, or, you know, like, um, you know, don't wait for the Messiah, you know, save the world around yourself. That's what you should do. And then, and if everyone does that, we'll get there. Amen, amen. Great, everybody, guys. Uh, I will see you all next Thursday. We have a great debate with Sherry Sufi and Ryan Belros. Actually, that will be next Monday. Next Thursday, we're doing a debate, a new topic, Capitalism for Socialism, the first ever on The Great Debate. It's going to be very interesting. So uh, please tune in, friends. Uh, and as always, with love from Tel Aviv, Israel.